Thank you for joining us today. We'll be studying the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be discussing what the Bible says about how we're not to use our freedom in a way that causes others to stumble. So if you'll open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll begin our lesson. Thanks for joining, and why don't we begin in prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much for this group. I thank you for the ability for us to gather together, even though we're prohibited from gathering in person together right now due to the coronavirus. It's a crazy time, as you know, out there, and people are just sort of in a state of panic. And I just thank you so much for the peace that you promise us as Christians. I thank you for all that you have done in settling me down and calming me down. And, you know, as we read your word, you tell us that we should be at peace. We should not be afraid that Satan uses fear and worry and things like that in order to try to pull us away and try to convince us that we shouldn't trust you. And yet we know that you've got this, that this is all part of your plan and you are doing something right now through this. We don't fully understand what that is, but we know that you're at work. It may be that this is your way of pulling a lot of people back to you so that they can see the only place they can really find peace is in you and not in themselves, that they are not in control. And I just ask you, Father, to continue to give us that peace, continue to help us trust that you're in control and help us reflect that peace to others, everyone else that we encounter, so that they might ask us, why is it that you're so peaceful when it seems like the world's falling apart? Because we know that it's all in your hands and you're in control, and we just thank you, Father, for everything that you've done for us. You've woke us up this morning, you give us the air that we're breathing, and you tell us that you will take care of everything for us. And whatever time that you want us to be here, that's why we'll be here And we just appreciate the love that you continue to show on us as well as the blessings and just help us to continue to trust in you and that you do have this. Father, as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians this morning, I just ask you to speak through me, speak through everyone who speaks up today during our discussion so that we can learn from each other and not only learn but apply what we hear this morning in a way that continues to change us into the people that you want us to be. And Father, help us use it in a way that when we come upon these types of trials in our life, like this coronavirus, that we quit asking why. Why are you doing this? Because why doesn't really matter. It's the what. What things do you want to do through us during this time to help bring others to Christ? And so, Father, help us to be focused on the what. The why is up to you. The why is it's part of your plan, and help us to trust that. And we ask all these things through Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been studying 1 Corinthians now for several weeks, I guess several months now. And what we've been reading about is we've been seeing Paul's response to many questions that the members of the church in Corinth had in response to his first letter that was lost. And so there was a first letter. This is actually the second letter, but it's called 1 Corinthians. And he's been responding to many questions. This was a new church, and they were trying to figure out how they were to live out their faith. And so they had many questions. There were many divisions in the church that we read about as people were trying to add things to the gospel. And and so Paul is trying to straighten all these things out by answering their questions. And we've read everything from his talk about lawsuits, 
his talk about marriage and divorce. So many, many practical things that the early church was really struggling with. And so today, what we're going to start going into is they had questions about food that was sacrificed to idols. There was a lot of that going on at the time. There were many pagan beliefs that at that time that they thought by sacrificing food to idols that that would bring favor from these various gods with a small g, gods, and that even perhaps that by sacrificing it to these gods, it would cleanse the food from demons. And so this was something that they were wondering about, asking about. Could they still eat that food even though it had been sacrificed to idols? And it's interesting that back many, many months ago when we were going through the book of Acts, we actually read a little bit about this, some of the pronouncements that came from James. So before we begin, I want to take us back there because that'll give us a little bit of a view as to some of the thinking that was even perhaps going through Paul's mind and some of the early church because the Jerusalem council had actually met and discussed this along with circumcision back in the very early church, back in Acts 15. So hold your finger right here in 1 Corinthians 8 and go back over to the left. I want to take you back over to Acts. Go over two books to Acts 15. And let me see where we want to start. Why don't I just start right at the beginning and I'll try to go through this quick, but it'll help set this up. So what they were talking about is this was just after the Gentiles had then received the Holy Spirit and they were becoming Christians. And so some of the early Jewish people who had become Christians were beginning to say, well, yeah, that's great that the Gentiles are becoming Christians, the non-Jews, but they have to get circumcised. In other words, what they were trying to say is you have to become a Jew first and then you can become a Christian. And so this question came before the early church, and Paul and Barnabas, who were out working with and ministering to the Gentiles, decided to go to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles and the elders of the church and ask them about this issue of circumcision. But in that discussion, the sacrifice to idols was also mentioned. So let me take us back there just so we can sort of see what the early church was struggling with, because there were many that were trying to continue to keep some of the Jewish laws and Jewish traditions and say these things were required in addition to placing your faith in Jesus Christ in order to have salvation. And that's what Paul is going to correct here in just a minute when we get back over to Corinthians. But let's go through Acts real quick. And I'll just read it very quickly because we spent a good deal of time in this many months ago. But I wanted to refresh your memory. Chapter 15 of Acts, verse 1. And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's what they were adding. It's faith plus something, circumcision in this case. And when Paul and Barnabas had great discussion and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas, that means the believers that Paul and Barnabas were working with, and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So it's about A.D. 49, about that time. And so it is interesting to notice that at that time already in the early church, they had elders in the church in Jerusalem. Verse 3, Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. 
So they were telling about, you remember we studied this, when the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles, just like had happened with the Jews at Pentecost. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. So what Paul and Barnabas were reporting, they were saying the Gentiles had become Christians, and yet they were also explaining that some of the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians, were saying that they had to get circumcised before they could become Christians. Verse 5, But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees, remember these are the really religious Jewish people who had believed, so these are Pharisees who had become Christians, stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So he's not even talking about just the Ten Commandments. He's talking about all the food laws, circumcision, clothing, all kinds of things that this person is saying that these new Christians, the Gentiles, they have to observe all these things so they can be set apart like the Jewish people were. Verse 6, And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. So he's talking about when the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles that we have read about back when we were studying Acts Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us, meaning the Jewish people, and them, meaning the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. And so it was just by faith is what Peter is saying. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, meaning the yoke of the law? Nobody was able to obey the law consistently and entirely. It was impossible. And so he's saying, why are we going to put that yoke on the Gentiles? Verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. So he's saying that salvation comes through, not through observing the law or by your works. It only comes through your faith. Verse 12, and all the multitude kept silent And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James, so this is, James is the the brother of Jesus. You can see that in Galatians 2.9 if you want to go look. So James is one of the ruling elders. He answers and he says, brethren, listen to me. Simon, this is Peter's Jewish name, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So now he's going to quote out of the prophet Amos and the prophet Jeremiah. After these things, I will return, and that's talking about Jesus, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind, meaning the Gentiles, may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, meaning Jesus, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. 
So this was written in the Old Testament. This was prophecy that the Gentiles would be able to come to faith by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. So now James is going to give his judgment here in in verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment, this is James, that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. He's saying the Gentiles don't have to get circumcised, but that we write to them, He's saying we should send them a letter that they do these four things. They should abstain from things contaminated by idols. So that means food sacrificed to idols. Do you see that? Number two, and from fornication. Number three, and from what is strangled. And number four, and from blood. So James isn't saying that these four things are are going to give, by abstaining from them, give you salvation. And this is what Paul's going to explain They're to refrain from these things because these types of things were so odious to devout Jews that if the Gentiles were practicing those things, then the rest of the non-believing Jewish people would never listen to the gospel because these are huge stumbling blocks to the Jewish people. And so he continues on. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they chose Judas called Bersabbas. And by the way, that's not Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. This was a leader in the Jerusalem church. He may have even been the brother to Joseph Bersabbas, who you can read about in Acts one twenty three, And Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. So they send Paul and Barnabas back with several other people from Jerusalem that are mentioned here. They send them with a letter. And here's what the letter says. The apostles and the brethren who are elders, that's who's writing it, and they're writing it to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we give no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. So he's saying there's been some people there that are trying to tell you to do things that we didn't instruct them to do, and it's giving you trouble. Verse 25, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. So they're saying, we're not only sending Barnabas and Paul back to you, we're sending a couple of the leaders from our church in Jerusalem to also report the same thing so that you know that this is from the council of elders and apostles there in Jerusalem. Verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So the church in these early days that we're just reading about here in Acts, they were struggling with where they came from, their Jewish heritage, all the laws, and they're having a hard time breaking away from the law is what we see. And it was a big deal for them to give up circumcision. That was a big deal because that's what really set them 
a Jewish person apart from all the other nations. And so it's interesting that this came from James. Paul remained silent through all of this. And we're going to see now when we go into Corinthians that Paul, I think, is going to clarify this. I don't think it's in conflict, but I think he's going to clarify because clearly Paul knows the will of God. Even Christians today, you can look at the various denominations and various denominations are very strong about certain things, but I'm going to say these certain things are the non-essential things. And what's important is that we stay focused on the fundamental things, that salvation is by grace alone. It comes from our faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by God's grace alone. Those are the fundamentals, and there will be some disagreements around the non-essential things. And so Paul is now going to clarify, let's go back over to 1 Corinthians. So you have that backdrop. And so the people in Corinth, the believers, let me set the stage here a little bit. You're going to hear about this knowledge. Well, they know that there's only one God, okay? There's only one God. So if this food has been sacrificed to an idol, well, an idol, that's some made-up God doesn't even exist. They have knowledge of that. So why are we getting all hung up about this food that's been sacrificed to an idol? An idol, that God doesn't even exist. So we ought to be able to have the freedom to eat it. Okay, so let's now dig into it and see what Paul says. This is a short chapter, but there's a lot in here. And, and as I'm reading this, I know many of you, and I know I have thought this from time to time, when you see chapters in scripture on this, it's like, what is all this about these idols and this pagan worship and sacrificing to idols? I mean, I don't know anybody that makes a, a little figure out of gold or whatever, clay or whatever, and worships it. What is all this idol stuff? Well, I'm going to tell you, I think just about all of us have idols. They're just different than what this idol is, okay? It might be we worship money, we worship our material possessions, it might be alcohol, it might be smoking cigarettes, it might be smoking pot, it might be pornography, it can be any number of things that it's like, wow, man, I gotta have more of that. My fleshly desire, this is what I, I gotta have more of that. I gotta have more of that. And so... Just keep in mind that while none of us maybe know of anybody that has an idol that we worship, some little figurine of some type, I will tell you that I think most of us do struggle with some type of idol in our life. And it might be food. It might be just this enormous desire to consume way more food than we need to have. As we read this, I want you to also keep in the back of your mind what idols might you have that you haven't thought about? What idols maybe do friends or people that you are with from time to time, what they might have, and how maybe some of your actions may cause your fellow Christian or non-Christian, non-believer to stumble and maybe not see Christ in you. So we'll come back and talk about that. All right, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols... So they had asked this question of Paul, what about things sacrificed to idols? And he's going to respond, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, or your translation may say it puffs you up, but love edifies. So he's first laying out the guiding principle of Christian behavior is love. 
And love is way better than knowledge. And while he's going to talk about food sacrifice to idols now, he's really talking about any type of behavior that could cause a brother or sister to stumble. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So our focus on love and our love of others rather than knowledge really helps us stay focused on God. And we know that idols are not from God. And what they're saying is, since there are no other gods other than the God, then food sacrifice to some little figurine, what's it matter? We know that there's only one God, and so we ought to be able to eat of it. Verse 4, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, what he's referring to there is that Paul's saying, yeah, Satan and demons do exist. Yes, indeed, there are many gods and many lords that are out there. They do exist. Verse 6, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Through him are all things, and we exist through him. So let me show you a couple of verses where Paul is getting this. I mean, we all know that, but let me just give you a couple of things to hang your hat on. Go back over to Acts. We'll kind of go back over to the left. I'll show you two verses. Acts nineteen twenty six, And this is again where he's talking about idols. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. It goes on to talk about, and there is only one God. And let me show you Psalm 115. Go way over to, you know, about the middle of the Old Testament. Psalm 115. And this whole psalm is talking about idols and contrast idols with the Lord. And I'll just kind of read the first few verses. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts them. He's talking about those who make these idols or become like them because they're trusting in nothing. They're not trusting in the Lord. Verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And you can go on and on and, and read the rest of it later. And there's many, many verses that talk about there only being one God. That's essentially what Paul is talking about here. So let me go back. Verse 7, if, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience 
being weak is defiled. So he's saying that there's some that they may be young Christians. They're weak in their faith. And so when they see people eating food sacrificed to an idol, even though they are right in the beginning knowing that there's one God, they can get confused if they see another believer doing it and they may think it's okay to worship idols. That's what he's talking about. Verse eight, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. So he's saying it doesn't matter if you eat it or not because God doesn't care. Food sacrificed to an idol is like sacrifice to nothing. So it ain't going to make you better if you eat it. It ain't going to make you better if you don't eat it. Verse 9, but take care lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak. So that's where you go wrong. We have total freedom to choose to eat meat sacrificed to idols or choose not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. We have that freedom because we know that there's only one God. However, what he's saying, what trumps our freedom should be our love for our neighbor. That should control. And if by eating meat sacrificed to an idol is going to cause someone else to stumble. Either they think it's okay to worship idols, maybe they're not even a believer, and so they actually think eating meat sacrificed to idols is a terrible thing, or maybe they think it's a good thing. And whatever we're doing, they don't see the light of Christ shining in us because they see we're acting just however they are. So what he's saying is you need to understand who you're doing this with and understand what impact that may have on either their faith or their ability to see Christ living in you. That's what he's talking about. So it says, but take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge, that's, you know that it doesn't matter, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idol. So the weak or an early believer may think it's something good to go ahead and worship idols. Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. So if you do something that your conscience is telling you that you should not do, it's a sin. So where do I get that from? Go over to the left. Go over to Romans, and we looked at this when we were studying Romans. Go over to Romans 14. Just back over to the left, not very far. Let me start at the very top. I'll try to go through this fast. Romans 14, verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. So different denominations, how do we apply this today? There are all kinds of different rules about alcohol, movies, dancing, tithing, whether you should go to Christian school or parochial school, alcohol, the list goes on and on and on. And what this is saying is we shouldn't judge others if they practice these things that Aren't Now, the Bible is very clear on not getting drunk. I'm talking about just use of alcohol. Let me make that clear. But there's lots of things around the fringes that the Bible is not clear on. And yet some people believe or feel the Holy Spirit has put on their heart that they're not to do those things. And so we shouldn't judge them 
if they choose not to do it, just because we know we have the freedom to do it, if they choose not to do it, that's fine. There may be some things that we feel strongly about, smoking or whatever it might be, that the Bible is not crystal clear on whether you should or shouldn't do that. But for us, we feel that it's wrong. There are many people who don't drink alcohol at all because for them, they just don't feel it's right. It's not because they're an alcoholic. The Holy Spirit has convicted them on their heart that they shouldn't drink. And yet they shouldn't look on others who have wine from time to time or whatever it is, as long as they're not getting drunk. They shouldn't judge those people. That's what he's saying here. Verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Because he's basically saying we're all servants of God. To his own master he stands or falls, and stands he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So it's going to be the Lord who's going to judge us. Verse 5, one man regards one day above another. Now he's talking about the Sabbath. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. So you need to choose on the basis of your own convictions before God, is what he's saying. Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, and so let me just drop back down, uh, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, meaning he can eat anything. But to him who thinks anything be unclean, to him it's unclean. So if the Holy Spirit has put on your heart that that's unclean or that you shouldn't drink or whatever that is, then you shouldn't do it. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and in the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Meaning it's evil if you're doing it and it's causing a brother to stumble. He's saying we need to sacrifice our freedom and our own rights in order to honor others and to show love to one another. We shouldn't be known by what we eat and drink or what we refuse to eat or drink, but how we love others. Verse 21, it is good not to eat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. He's saying, so you shouldn't do those things if it's going to cause your brother to stumble. The faith which you have have as your own conviction before God, meaning you need to do what God puts on your heart to do or not do. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Whatever you believe about these things, keep it between you and God. But if you have a question on whether you should drink at all or whether whatever these, whatever these things might be, playing cards, gambling, whatever, 
You need to ask God and let him tell you what to do. And if he puts on your heart, you are not to do that, then it is a sin for you to go forward with it, even though it might not be a sin for someone else. Verse 23, and here's where he says that. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So that's where that comes from. So let me go back over and finish out 1 Corinthians, and then let's have some discussion. Go back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I am in verse 12. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. So a little bit of summary, and then I want to hear from you all a little discussion on how do we apply this in our own lives. Certainly, Paul's saying we have the right to do certain things that the Bible allows or doesn't speak specifically to, but sometimes we need to give up our right to do those things if exercising that is going to cause another person to stumble. So we shouldn't use our freedom in a way that's going to cause someone else to sin or to stumble. Before I go further, let me just ask you guys, can you think of some things that you should potentially refrain from or at least pray about when you're with others before you proceed? And it might be something that you have the complete freedom to do that maybe you should refrain from because you know it could cause a brother to stumble or sister, another believer, or maybe cause a non-believer to view you as just being like everyone else and therefore you're not set apart. Remember, what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians is how we are to live our lives differently than everyone else, set apart. Talked about lawsuits against another believer. We shouldn't be doing that because that's what everybody does. I know these are difficult things, but Paul's calling us to set ourselves apart. So what comes to your mind? How might we think about, and maybe not you, just I'm not asking you specifically. I'll keep it more global. How should all of us think about this and apply it in our own lives? Any thoughts? Yeah, I've got something. So I live in Colorado, and the laws are a little bit different here with certain substances, uh, as you probably all know. Yep. Uh, just because something is legal doesn't mean it's, it's good for you. So clearly I have the right, if I wanted to, to go smoke pot because it's legal here in Colorado. But uh, what a stumbling block that would be for other individuals, you know, if I took that legal aspect of being able to do that, uh, and I know that wouldn't be a stumbling block, so that's one of the things I abstain from. Even though I have the freedom by law, a man's law in this case, to do that, so there's a great, for me, I guess that would be, you know, an example of something that is legal, and because of that, I have the freedom to do that, but I abstain and don't do that. Excellent. That's a perfect example. What else? What else comes to anyone's mind? I also wanted to mention that I hope uh, when I come to Texas, the first thing I do is go to Whataburger. So I hope that's not an idol or a stumbling block for me. <laughs> that's my greatest desire is just to go to Whataburger. <laughs> just depends on how many you order. <laughs> that's awesome. Larry, I've got an example that uh, I'll make this story short, but it came from my father. We moved to a community here in Central Texas, and my dad had, had grown up with a conviction, it became his conviction, that he was not to 
going to consume alcohol. Now that was, he did that publicly and he did that privately. And our family, our small family, we were very aware of that. So that was not a problem. And he didn't have a problem with other people making decisions about their convictions. But he was a high school football coach and he was invited into the home of one of his student athletes. And that night, they asked him to have dinner with them, and he agreed to do that. And they offered him all kinds of things, tea, water, you know, coffee, beer, wine, whatever. And he, he said he didn't remember what he took, but everybody else sitting at the table, including his student athletes, were drinking beer. And there was a team rule that during the season, and many of you may have, you know, operated under those same things, that there wasn't to be any consuming of alcohol. So here was this student athlete sitting right beside him, breaking a team rule, but it never came to that young man's mind or his family that that was breaking a team rule. This was in the privacy of their own home and their own life. And my dad walked away and he said, I understand now in a better way what the Apostle Paul was talking about, because that's their conviction. And that he's not going to receive any punishment because he has a, a conviction that his family has. And I've always read these scriptures uh, through sort of the filter of my dad's eyes and experience that night. And it was, well, it was just a simple but profound lesson that I learned. I really appreciate you sharing that. That's a good one. And alcohol is a good one. Um, clearly, the Bible says that you should not be drunk. That is definitely a sin. But there isn't a prohibition about drinking alcohol. And yet, there are many people who have alcohol problems. So I'll take that line for a minute. So if you go to dinner with somebody, a friend, and you know that they're an alcoholic, whether or not they're a Christian or not, you know, it might be a good thing for you not to drink, just so you're not putting that temptation right in front of them. They see you drinking and you're just tempting the heck out of them while they're trying to live a life of abstinence. And so that would be a place that maybe we need to think about it. Maybe you're going to dinner with somebody who you know doesn't drink. They're a Christian, and you know they don't drink because the Holy Spirit has put on their heart not to drink at all. Maybe then you shouldn't drink either, just so you're not creating a a temptation for them at that time. You're giving up your freedom for the love of that person. Or maybe you're going to dinner with somebody who is not a believer, and that might be a good time to not drink at all, just because you want them to see the light of Christ in you. And we're set apart to live differently. And you're not doing it to try to elevate yourself above them, but you're doing it in a way to try to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life. You know, it may be that you say something that's really funny and they look at it, they interpret it as you being drunk. And they'd say, well, gosh, you were were lit up and drunk and you're no different than anybody else when you weren't drunk at all. And so just to make sure that's the case, uh, you know, I would certainly encourage people when you're at a business function, really be careful because you don't want people to think you were drunk. That gets around the company. But even beyond that, just anywhere. 
I think we need to be very mindful of where we are exercising those types of freedoms. Even eating, taking a friend who has maybe a a really serious weight problem, and you know, they struggle with food. Maybe food is an idol to them. Taking them to lunch or dinner at an all-you-can-eat place is maybe not the best thing to do with them. Maybe you should take them somewhere else where they don't have that temptation. You're not doing it to elevate yourself. You're doing it out of love for the other person. You're giving up your freedom in order to try to help the other person. Does that make sense? Any other? Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.